Hi there, my name's Oshin Lunny and welcome to Audio Talks presented to you by Harman. And this episode, we are going to explore the past, present and future of music. Now, music is, of course, the universal language. But what happened to music when we started writing it down? And what happens next in a world of digitization and interactive technology? I'm thrilled to be joined now by two very brilliant minds to unpack the past, present and future of music. Michael Spitzer is a musicologist, author and academic. Former president of the Society for Music Analysis and professor at the University of Liverpool. Welcome to the podcast, Michael. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Delighted to have you. And joining Michael is Gerd Leonard, who is a keynote speaker, author, futurist and humanist, CEO at the Futures Agency, a video and audio podcast host and also a filmmaker. Welcome to the podcast, Gerd. Thank you. And also, of course, a former musician for 15 years, and I'm quite into the music thing. To put it mildly, I believe there's a Quincy Jones Award in there somewhere. I mean, that was the perfect segue into the question I wanted to begin with, which is really, you both have very rich backgrounds connected with music, although you're doing so much more today. There is a seam of music in both of your lives, and I think it would be great for the listeners to get to know your musical backgrounds as well as your work today. So Gerd, do you want to talk to us a bit about the role that music has played in your life? And maybe you can tell us some more about those many years as a musician, the Quincy Jones Award, some very cool things that you've been involved in. Yeah, music has always been a very big deal in my life because I started out as a kid when I was 10 years old. I wanted to play the piano, but the piano was considered to be not suitable for men in my family. Wow. <laughs> it was not something, well, not something that guys would do. So basically, I, I then picked up the guitar and I learned how to play the guitar and I very quickly got into bands and music was always very big. That was in Germany, of course, back then. And then I moved to America and I, I got a scholarship at Berkeley College of Music uh, in Boston. I don't really know why, but it was called the Quincy Jones Award. <laughs> I guess they had to fulfill a quota of Germans. But in any case, they got me a scholarship and then I went there for two years. It was a great time, the whole scene in Boston. And I got to study with who is who pretty much at Berkeley. That was 1986, 87, like, I don't know, 200 years ago. And so there I really got into uh, music even deeper as a ranger, composer and performing musician. And then I, in the US where I lived until roughly 1995, I made about 20 records and I toured, I played in Vegas. I did the whole thing. And then in the mid-90s, I went on the internet to do a bunch of music startups, uh, including LicensedMusic.com and a few others. So I, I morphed from being a musician to being more in music technology. And then in 2004, I wrote my first book called The Future of Music, together with Dave Cusack from Berkeley as well. And that became a bestseller in a very short time. I mean, music is just absolutely written through your life in so many ways. And that's an incredible past. Uh, and Michael, coming over to yourself, the same question. A, a lot of people will be aware of some of the stuff that you're publishing online, your published work. But talk to us a bit about your relationship with music and how that's been a factor in your life and in your background. Well, my earliest musical memory as a child was associating the sound of music coming from my parents' room with the glow of magic. So I would have been about five years old. And ever since then, that was a lifeline to me, a kind of umbilical cord of something magical and, and glowing and warm. And I never looked back. I began to play piano, violin, viola, and went on an academic track through to Oxford, where I did a first degree in musicology, and then a PhD in 
Beethoven in Southampton University. What I did there was in some ways extremely strange. It was looking at Beethoven's compositional sketches, which is standing behind Beethoven's shoulder and watching him, as it were, as he's composing and then deconstructing the scores, the whole genesis of his music, looking at his sketches, extrapolating every stage of the evolution of his ideas. In some ways, I was inside Beethoven's mind. And that's an incredibly privileged position to have, to be communing with a universal genius. But my journey started there. Though I started fairly square as a Beethoven scholar, went to, when I came to Liverpool University, my current home, to Rip Van Winkle waking up stage of waking up to popular music. The majority of my students are pop music, which is fantastic. So my journey then became one of looking at the totality of music across the world, which is non-Western, ethnomusicology, populist, popular culture. And my vision, as it were, which I expressed in my various books, I've written four books now, is that it's all the same. There's a common humanity. It doesn't matter where you start, you end up in this Martian planetary overview of music being a universal language. So my most recent book, The Musical Human, uh, immodestly subtitled A History of Life on Earth, is the first ever evolution of music from the dinosaurs, frankly, to the digital age. And that is expressing my, my vision that music is the most important thing ever. I love it. I think you're definitely amongst friends and fellow travellers on the Audio Talks podcast here and uh, our listeners would tend to agree with you there. Now, I'd like to stay with you a little while, Michael, because you recently published a lecture, which is brilliant, which I really recommend that you check out if you're listening. It's called 40,000 Years of Music Explained in Eight Minutes. And we will be linking to that in the show notes. And in this video, you track the impact of music notation, which enabled composers to write down and send music to musicians anywhere using this new technology of paper for the first time and notation. How did this invention change our relationship to music and performance? When you look at where it all went wrong in the West, and we are in a sort of moment of decolonizing everything, and we're feeling responsible for everything which is happening, it all goes wrong about a thousand years ago in Italy, where a monk called Guido invents what we call staff notation, which is pinning notes or pitches on, onto lines, which is a score. And in many ways, that's very counterintuitive because music belongs in the voice, doesn't really belong on paper. It's a little bit like literature. But once you, as it were, you pen the butterfly onto the paper, <laughs> everything changes in one's relationship to, to sound. You create a barrier or a line between those who compose and those who merely perform and those who merely listen. And music becomes an art of mechanical reproduction. You're reproducing a score. And that leads to a fairly abstract and detached relationship to music. It ultimately becomes rather passive. So where we are today, most of us consume music passively, listening to your favorite song or, or your favorite track. Although we're all born within a capacity to be musical, that abilities taught out by the educational system, life simply gets in the way. And so willy-nilly, we end up in our armchairs or with our earbuds consuming other people's music. And it starts a thousand years ago, but in my book, 
you can extrapolate it back ultimately to 40,000 years ago to the cognitive evolution where Homo sapiens becomes behaviorally mature or behaviorally modern. So it's baked into the long, long narrative of the history of technology, the history of cognition. So what becomes notation in the West is just a footnote to the longer story of the evolution of mind. Incredible, incredible. And yeah, like you say, this is a a very long story arc that you're dealing with, but you're talking about less barriers between listeners and composers and performers before notation arrived. Were there some music traditions that just continued the way that they always have, or did this notation revolution affect everything? It absolutely does. Look, I'm talking about what we call official classical music in the West, written by the church. So what is notated is what is sanctioned by the church. And we can see it in action. The world's oldest fully notated complete song is called the Sekulos Song, and it was discovered, it's about 200 years AD, and it was discovered in Hellenistic Anatolia, or modern-day Turkey. And it looks perfectly modern, like a piece of folk music. It's in a lilting 4-4 time, it's in A major, it's diatonic. But that's the last occasion, really, where the church allows people to notate real music. It's still there, it goes underground, it happens in the field, in the taverns, in ships. It's the unofficial other side of the curtain. And it certainly happens across most of the world, in China, in in India, in in South America, in Africa. So I'm talking about a very narrow subset of music, which we call in the West official classical music. Right. And so there were these two parallel music traditions, the official classical music, the sanctioned music, but also the music of the fields, the factories, the fishing boats, etc. What happened to this with the arrival of recorded music when folks were able to listen to music without actually being performed in real time in front of them? Recording is a form of notation because you're freezing a particular performance. So if you go to a a club and you watch an artist, it's very likely that that artist will sing the song differently night after night. Yeah. But we all pretend that when we listen to to a a track or a recording, it's it's a single static song. It freezes the song. So you only have to go to a a stadium, to to a show, and you'll see a band playing your favourite material slightly differently. They might mix up the set, whereas an album tends to freeze the uh, order of the tracks. And the classic example is Abbey Road by the Beatles, where George Martin definitely pre-thought or pre-composed the order of the tracks, which is why um, when you flip the side over, you get Here Comes the Sun, which is a natural beginning to the second half of of the album. Um, so, so even the succession of or the ordering of tracks becomes frozen in a great album. And that isn't the case in reality, in real life. Maybe this speaks to some of our desire to go and have these experiences in a real space with our performers at big concerts and festivals, etc. And you spoke about this in your lecture, which was about the role of leisure time as a catalyst to the concert experience. Could you tell us a bit more about this idea of music consumption being a leisure activity in terms of the concert? And uh, talk to us a bit about where we are today. Through most of the world, people worked really hard. Only a tiny fraction of society, the aristocrats, the the church, had the time to to, to have leisure. For most of us, we were out there ploughing the fields or fighting battles or on 
or rowing on ships, mm. in which case music was whistle while you work. You sang or you played whilst we were working. So we have sea shanties where you'd use music as a tool to coordinate rhythms of hauling the anchor or the sail, or cotton hollers in the fields where you'd use music to communicate and to carry great distances, or you would use music to weave or to spin yarn. And this was absolutely the norm. And as the middle class evolved and we invented free time, you have this really quite artificial notion of listening to music without doing something, you know, and we have the time to sit in our chair, our sofa, or even walk around the city and listen to music. This is a very unusual activity. Now, I have to add that things fold over when we start to bring music into our work using earbuds. Mm. So most of us, when we're in office, we have a kind of a sonic bubble. Yes. We create sound to isolate ourselves sonically, also privately, and we use sound to demarcate spaces within the office environment. So in a, in a funny way, we're going back to how music used to be employed a thousand years ago. But there's an important exception that in the olden days, we used music that we made ourselves. We sang, we even composed our own songs. Whereas nowadays, we're listening to other people's music. We're listening to Beyonce or Vivaldi, which is written by somebody else. Again, back to the idea of being rather passive about our consumption of music. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Michael. Okay, and Gerd, we're going to come over to your good self because one of the concepts that Michael mentioned in his video about the 40,000 years of music was the idea that we're drowning in music these days. It's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And I'm sure many Audio Talks podcast listeners might be aware you were one of the first people to talk about the concept of music as water as early as 1999. And this is a concept that the late David Bowie echoed some years later. It's a big deal and it's sort of where we are now with our streaming services. Gerd, could you talk to us a bit about what happened to music when digital formats and the internet arrived? I think many good things happened and some not so good things. But really what happened with the internet is that access became essentially a no-brainer, right? As soon as you write a song, boom, it's available. And the entire structure of the industry changed as a consequence because the performance is no longer a copy. Or let's put it the other way around. Every performance is a copy. And the legal distinction between the two has gone away. And so the unit... Uh, remuneration idea has gone away. Now it's per play, per stream. And the access has been leveled so anybody that wants to reach people can. But of course, that means there's 100 million people trying to do the same, right? Yes, <laughs> so, yes. Chicken and the egg. And the music like water concept was quite clear that it was going to happen as soon as we had enough power in the cloud and enough mobile connectivity. And now we have, what, 175 million people paying 10 bucks a month. That's quite a good chunk, almost 2 billion. And for the artist, I think it has been both good and terrible. Uh, good in the sense of access, terrible in the sense of competition. And, you know, still the record labels are making most of the money because, you know, they still have the same feudalistic slavery deals with the artists than they had, you know, for the last 100 years. So that really hasn't changed. And I would say the problems of the industry have been kind of amplified a little bit by the internet because people think that we have a solution like the creator economy, which sometimes we do. Kevin Kelly says 1,000 real fans are enough. And sometimes yes. that works. 
But generally speaking, we have all the huge amplification of all of the issues of creatives, which is how to find an audience, how to not get drowned in doing business stuff that you don't want to do, yeah. right? And how to be distracted from creating. And of course, the fidelistic structure of the content industry basically paying you 10% if you're lucky from the proceedings. Yes, indeed. And so we've kind of moved to this world where music is, as you predicted correctly, as ubiquitous as water, you know, we're kind of drowning in it. Do you see a role for digital scarcity at all in this world of music recordings and performance? What are your thoughts on the use of NFTs, for example? I don't really see that as much of a play. I think the only scarcity that we have is attention. And yeah, it's a fight for attention. It's a fight for people to pay attention to me and not somebody else and to build relationships, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's true whether you're a dancer or a writer or a musician. You have to build an audience. You have to find a niche. You have to cement relationships. And you have to be very lucky. You know, mm -hmm. you're lucky to play a gig where everybody says, wow, that's amazing, you know, and there you have your 10,000, a million true fans. And I think that is still very much the same problem, regardless of the internet. You know, the distribution is a default. That's great. But unfortunately, monetization is not. <laughs> so that creates a lot of opportunities. Like I see modern record labels, for example, really what they're doing is they are like a all-around service agency for artists, right? That's not about distribution. It's about marketing, promotion, uh, grooming the act, getting a right producer, you know, helping you get your act together like Motor Music, for example, does in Berlin, my good friend Tim Renner and his wife. That's exactly what they're doing. So they're not a record label in that sense. But that's been a good thing, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of enthused about the new business models that can break this feudalistic structure and add more value to listeners, to performers, to labels, to people who love music. But Kurt, you know, same with yourself, you know, you're obviously a world-renowned futurist. You're one of the folks who speaks about the future before anybody else, including music as water. And we've been hearing from Michael that music has always had an element of communal co-creation. Do you think this could possibly come back with any of the digital innovation tools or platforms like, you know, their Instagram mashups, their immersive virtual spaces like Roblox and collaborative tools like Endless? Is there anything that you see in terms of the overlap between music, technology and creation that excites you? Riffing off Peter Drucker, I would say culture eats technology for breakfast. Right? Amazing. I think that really what is happening here is that technology in itself will not change cultural, human, societal things in the sense of saving it or bringing it back or so. This is something that we do. It's the choices that we make. It's kind of a little bit like the internet and nature. You can use the internet so much in virtual reality and the metaverse and what have you that you completely forget about what you are, where you live, and what nature means. There's actually a name for this called nature deficit disorder. And uh, the same thing is happening here with artists. You know, if you are caught up in the process of satisfying your fans on Instagram and wearing the latest clothes and makeup, uh, you know, is that going to create a groundswell for communal music? I doubt it. I think really this is what music is all about, right? We get together, we create it, we listen, we invent, and this is never going away. It's a human thing. And I'm hoping that technology will allow us to come together virtually and otherwise, and it will bring us back to what really matters, which is what goes on between people, not between computers. And I think this is actually good, but we have a revival of the music industry coming up once the record labels are less in the position to extort their 90%, the same goes for the publishers, then I think there could be a new ecosystem unfolding 
maybe with a blockchain NFT kind of concept. But again, technology will not make that happen as a consequence. Technology does the opposite. It makes it more efficient, right? Mm. <laughs> But on the other hand, we may find new ways of discovering what we wanted to do in the first place, which is to connect with other people, you know, doing things that people do. Absolutely. Uh, and you spoke there about immersive virtual spaces and this idea that technology should facilitate us coming together to do human things together, empowered by technology. Do you think immersive audio as a format might have a role here? You know, I like the spatial audio concept. That is just absolutely a hit, in my view, uh, that has been demonstrated on the metaverse kind of concept. So as you're wearing a headset or something or goggles or whatever, you actually hear the sound coming from the direction that you're turning to. And that is a crucial innovation. Clearly, 3D and virtual reality spaces have that great potential. You know, on the other hand, it may also isolate us from seeking out the real thing. And it's, I always say, it's a little bit like dating. You know, you can go to an online dating site and you can pick the perfect partner and it looks like 99%. But 20 seconds into the meeting, you realize it's just totally off. Right? And why is that? Because what you say you want and what is explicit is not at all what we are. And it's just a little sub-segment of it. So I would say the virtual experience gets us five, maybe eventually 10% of the reality feeling. You know, when you're actually in a club with a musician and your vibration and the atmosphere, and, you know, you take it with all of your senses, uh, it is just so completely different than the VR experience that I think, you know, one will go with the other, so it's not a problem there. We just shouldn't forget that what happens between people is what happens in real spaces, in mm. my view, and everything else can serve to support it. Um, hells to the air for IRL experiences. I agree that immersive audio can play a huge part in keeping us together, maybe when we're geographically disconnected or we're trying to have new experiences. But again, there's no substitute for IRL Let's not forget, you know, that we are living in the age of simulation, right? So right. everything is being simulated. And I think the more we simulate, the more we tend to forget how the less convenient reality actually feels like. So if we are in the metaverse, you know, having virtual product meetings or writing a score together, uh, that is useful, but it is a simulation. And simulations can be useful, for example, for flight simulations for a pilot. But there's many stories about flight simulators telling you actually that a lot of pilots do amazingly well in the flight simulator. But when they run into a real pilot in real life in a real airplane, mm. their reaction is entirely different. And so this is the kind of thing that we have to keep in mind. I think it leads us back to nature, so to speak, and to actually connecting with real people. And this is why I think that will never really go away as long as we stay human. Mm. You know, once we become cyborgs, maybe that can change. I don't know. Ask <laughs> Elon Musk. You know, that's his plan, right? Indeed. Indeed. My goodness. Yeah, there's a topical figure for sure. And so, Gerd, you were just pointing out a few things that could happen in the future. And that was really fascinating. Now, I'm not going to ask both of you to map out the next 40,000 years of music, but what do you think the next 10 years or so might hold for music and technology lovers? And we'll start with yourself, Gerd. Well, I think it's going to be amazing. I always say the next 10 years will bring more change than the previous 100 years. Wow. <laughs> so first of all, I think, you know, we're going to see global connectivity go to 10G, You know, basically instant holographic content 
on a mobile device, you know, Star Trek type, hold up your mobile, bring out the band. Entirely possible. And that's going to be a whole new industry there. That can be both good and bad. Again, it's one of those things. But the other thing is, you know, we're going to have 9 billion people on the internet by 2030. That's the estimation. Right now it's four and a half. Yeah. Twice as many. You know what that will mean for reaching people and for niche markets and for the so-called long tail? You know, it's great potential. It might also be more Darwinistic because of the attention getting, right? Mm. I see great technological innovation in VR, in virtual spaces and sound dimensions, you know, new kinds of headsets, new kinds of stereo systems. And of course, the fact being is that, you know, location is no longer going to be a limiting factor. That's already true, but it's going to be even more true where, when you can bring together virtual bands from different locations, like has been tried a long time ago, but it's actually feasible now. So I can appear as a hologram together with the Rolling Stones, you know, if Amazing. they would invite me. Thank you. <laughs> yes. They're still going to be there 10 years from now. Um, who knows? I, yes. I, I think they're amazing, but 10 years is a stretch. Anyway, I think I have high hopes also for the possibility of a different creative economy. Mm. I don't really know how exactly that will come about. I think that we're we're seeing the decline of the kind of old-fashioned kind of feudalism, you work on my plantage kind of thing. <laughs> I think that's going away. And, you know, I've written five books. It was the same story. So I, I know what I'm talking about when I speak about how that works. Yeah, indeed. indeed. Thank you, Gareth. That's brilliant. We'll come back to that last point in a couple of minutes. And Michael, coming over to your good self, what say you about the next 10 years or so for music and technology lovers? What kind of developments do you think might happen or what would you like to see happen? To take a, a pessimistic line, one of my concerns is, I think Gert referred to it earlier, that it's about the attention economy yeah. and paying attention and having a attention threshold to be able to follow music beyond about two or three minutes. Mm. And you can see how streaming has warped the composing of, of songs where there's a tendency to front load hooks or choruses to capture someone's attention as they're browsing. And in the olden days, people had the space to allow a song to build across three, four, seven minutes to an end, to an ending, to have structure. And you see that also that playlist shuffle. So the idea of having a, a progression from one song to the next is gone. Mm. Now, my comfort zone in, is in classical music, where it's absolutely de rigueur to be able to follow a musical story over half an hour, one hour. Wagner's ring cycle is 22, is no, <laughs> 16 hours. So it's possible to follow music as one does in a movie. So if you have the attention to follow a film over 90 minutes, two hours, why can't you also have attention to follow music across at least half an hour? And I don't see that happening. I see it getting worse. Mm. This is a tremendous worry for me. But on the other hand, when you look back over several thousand years, music lasting half an hour was the exception that most music across the planet is songs, is lyric, yeah. is two or three minutes. So as the intellectual historian, it's interesting why in the West over what we call the common practice period from 1600 to about the death of Marlowe in 1910, why in the West we invented long range listening long-range attention spans. Maybe it was a precious flower which came from nowhere and will soon disappear. Mm. I don't know. 
I'm not that hopeful about recapturing that in the future. My goodness. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. Uh, one of our previous guests and a great futurist himself, Scott Cohen, who's now head of innovation over at uh, Warner's, um, he spoke a long time ago about this onslaught of micro content and the fact that attention spans were getting shorter and shorter and uh, kind of mirrored exactly what you're saying there. And that's our, our kind of do we have the attention span for even an entire song? It's questionable. But I was very encouraged by the acquisition of Prime Phonic, the brilliant classical music streaming platform by Apple Music. And I'm not sure where they are in terms of integrating this, but that might be some good news for more long form classical music lovers on the horizon. I do hope so. Uh, and so I would like to invite both of you now to a final question. And this is something that might be of interest to anybody who's listening, who makes music, who's part of the creator economy. How do we think the future of music can be made sustainable for the people involved in making it? Is there anything on the horizon with technology or new business models that's going to help people to collaborate and get paid? And uh, I'd like to send that to your good self first, Gerd. The thing is, Ocean, is the, there's a, an Indian saying, American Indian, says the wolf you feed is the wolf that wins. Wow. Yeah. Right? And that is so true when it's about creative work. Yes. And it's also very true about attention economy. Because this is what we create when we have companies that are toxic and unethical, like Facebook, mm -hmm. uh, essentially running news, right? This is just a parallel case to music. And I think in the end, if we want to have people creating and be successful at creating, we have to feed them, right? Yes. And feeding we do through all kinds of mechanisms, not just direct payments from us, but also public levies in taxes and funding public broadcasters, funding journalism. Like, you know, why are we in the jam that we're in with social media, which is primarily manipulation, lies, and money making? We're in there because we substituted humans for AI. Right, so, so we took the AI in and we kicked out the humans and now we have a medium, uh, Facebook and others, that's primarily based on machine intelligence, right? And it turns out it's noise, it's useless, it's negative, right? It's yeah. not solving the human purpose. The same for musicians. If we want music to be something that we hold dear, something that is created by people, not machines, which people are arguing, right, about. And I think David Byrne once said, you know, machines can make music but they cannot make great music, right? Mm. And so if we want that, then we have to have a structure for funding, which includes, again, public broadcasting, public funds, projects, and a fair structure of the industry that remunerates, not enslaves people. And that hasn't happened also because of copyright law, right? Copyright law is completely outdated and utterly useless. We need a compulsory license for the use of music, as I had said for 30 years, where people that create get paid in the process that's automatic. Amazing. Anyway, I think I have hope this will happen as part of the general turn towards the world becoming a bit more, as I say, people, planet, purpose, and prosperity, not just prosperity. Yes, excellent. <laughs> and I think this is happening. Wonderful. I'm very happy to hear that. And listeners, we will be including links to both Michael and Gerd's work in the show notes. And I really recommend you check out both of their lectures and books. And there's so much inspiring information there for music lovers, for lovers of people, planet and purpose. And uh, get yourselves inspired. And Michael, coming over to yourself, now, what would your thoughts be on how we can maybe 
engineer a more prosperous future for musicians and creators? You know, do you think technology can help? Do you think it's a cultural shift? What would you like to see happen to make sure this beautiful, uh, life-affirming art of music, as we've all experienced and talk about, is able to be sustainable and able to survive and thrive into the future? What needs to happen and to change is a change in educational policy to capture very young children, preschool and then through school. And you do that by giving head teachers, headmasters the resources to bring in specialist teachers to educate general teachers about the importance of music and to um, inculcate music from the age of two or three and right the way through school to bring back what used to be the case where music was a general life skill. And then by the same token to educate politicians that actually music is a cheap way of medicating people. Yes, Music makes you happier, makes you healthier. And that has financial and economic benefit, of course, because it's cheaper to prescribe music than to prescribe a drug or to deal with the consequences of people who aren't in the workforce. So it's joining up the dots between economics and education. And if you get the children at source when they're young, then there'll be a groundswell and that will change the culture. Uh, one thing on this, Ocean, it's very important that we bring back the humanities and education. Now, we've gone through a process of where all that matters was STEM, right? Science, technology, engineering, math. And that has led us to a technology era, which has been good in many ways. But really what, what human existence is all about, it's not so much about logic or rules or about engineering, right? And humanities, especially music, is where all of that happens. And I think we need to switch our curriculums back to the human agenda and not neglect STEM, of course, right? I call that HECI, Humanity, Ethics, Creativity, Imagination. Brilliant. And I totally agree with Michael. If we had more people playing music, we would have a whole different approach to everything. And you go to uh, countries like Colombia or India or Cuba, of course, right? Everybody is a musician, right? And why is that? Well, that is because music is part of absolutely everything, right? And music education is, and it's not being cut back everywhere like we have. Right? We have to bring that back and we'll have a better future. Amen. My goodness, you can't see us now, listeners, but I was punching the air listening to you both speak there. That's such an inspiring way to wrap things up there. We, of course, need to transform the world to make music a bigger part of our lives. And uh, we actually had a previous podcast with Tom Middleton and Afrik Lennon talking about the idea of medical grade music, how music just improves everything. It's good for mental health. It's good for the economy. And it drives me nuts when music and the creative arts are not viewed in this way. So it's very inspiring to, to hear what you're both saying there. Thank you so much. And we have one final question, which is a very important one, and it is to choose a track for our VIP title playlist. So, Michael, what track would you like to add to our title playlist? The opening track of the album, which changed the world of nature. It invented Greenpeace and the environmental movement. The album's called The Songs of the Humpback Whale, and it's it's, it's track number one. Amazing. What a choice. Thank you so much. That's absolutely brilliant. And Gerd, how about yourself? What track would you like to add to our playlist? You know, one of the most significant films I ever watched about the future was the original Blade Runner. 
yes. Ridley Scott. Uh, that was 1982, I think, right? And that song has kind of formed my understanding about how you look at the future. And one of the key songs in that is, I think it's called Rachel's Song or Love Song for Rachel, one of the two. Oh, yeah. I think it's the track where he goes to her apartment and they fall in love and so on. But anyway, I think it's called Song for Rachel or Rachel's Song, but this is one of the songs that, that really brings out the future. Oh, fantastic. I love it. That's a great counterpart there. And I'm going to add myself with that nature deficit disorder in mind, a track called Earth by Joe Henderson and Alice Coltrane, which is just beautiful. So listen, thank you both so much for joining us on Audio Talks presented by Harman. Michael Spitzer. Oh, thanks, Oshin. I had, a, I had a wonderful time. Thank you so much. Oh, wonderful. Glad to hear it. And Gerd Leonard. Thank you. All right, you're welcome. Check out my latest film at thegoodfuturefilm.com. I think you'll see some parallels to the discussion that we had today. Oh, for sure. We will link to thegoodfuturefilm.com in the show notes as well. So listeners, thank you for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe, comment and share Audio Talks with your friends and family. If you are enjoying the Audio Talks series of podcasts, why not pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your favourite podcasts and leave a nice review. It really does mean a lot and it helps new listeners get to know about the amazing guests like Michael and Gerd that we talk to in every single episode. For more exclusive content, some behind-the-scenes goodies and maybe even some competitions connect with us on instagram you can find us at audio talks podcast we'll be back soon for some more legendary audio talks see you next time